Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, if you hit the play button or are listening on radio, you know you are listening to the Bauer and Rose Show right here on Sirius XM, the Patriot Channel 125, the Bauer and Rose podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We're also hosted online by our good friends at justthenews.com. Gary, a lot to talk about today. Um, we, I think we have to start with the life of uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger. I will admit quite proudly, I will boast quite proudly that in my uh, four years in the Trump administration working for Vice President Pence, I developed uh, what I'd like to think was a wonderful, extraordinary uh, uh, relationship with Dr. Kissinger, spoke with him many times, met with him many times, brought him to the White House many times, considered him a long uh, uh, personal hero. The story of the man is so extraordinary. We can get into, we can talk about, you know, his accomplishments, his successes, his failures, um, uh, his story. You've been kicking around since you were 99 years old. There's going to be plenty of all of that, right? That's right. He, of course, was born in uh, 1923 in Firth, Germany, in Franconia, a middle-class town. His father was a schoolmaster. Nazis came to power in 1933. They are forced to flee Germany in 1938. Henry didn't speak a word of English. Uh, put himself through school by working at a, a brush factory in lower Manhattan, spent two hours a day, one hour traveling there, one hour traveling back to, to uh, enable him to study at night. Uh, the war breaks out. Uh, Kissinger volunteers before he's drafted, is a rear tank gunner in an artillery unit of the 101st, he was given the honor in March or April of 1945 by his fellow compatriots in that unit to be on the very first tank that liberated his own hometown of Firth. And he arrived, it's just an extraordinary story, he arrived as the liberator of his hometown to find that every single member of his family was gone. There wasn't a single survivor. Uh he was uh, discharged, refused the discharge, uh, re-enlisted, uh, re and became a Nazi hunter for two years, came back, went to Harvard, wrote these seminal books, became a somewhat famous public intellectual, and the story goes from there. But it's his origins, it's his beginnings, it's his rise that proves so uniquely American, so uh, so profoundly indicative of the possibilities of this country. And one can't help but wonder, after a life so well lived, 100 years, whether that is even possible anymore in this country. Mm. That, that's a great question, Tom. Um, so Henry Kissinger is obviously was a controversial figure, e even on the right. You know, some people saw him as the body of the embodiment of uh, the globalist impulse that uh, has overtaken America's foreign policy establishment and, and so forth. The, the, uh, the, the, one of the things that jumped out at me today is. Whatever you think of him, um, 
this is what Rolling Stone magazine wrote this morning. Henry, Chris, Henry Kissinger, war criminal beloved by America's ruling class, finally dies. That is the headline of the article. Um, measured purely by confirmed kills, the worst mass murderer ever executed by the United States was the white supremacist terrorist, Timothy McVeigh, the article says. But Timothy McVeigh pales compared to uh, the mass killer, Henry Kissinger. Um, No infamy uh, will find Kissinger on a day like today. Uh, Instead, in a demonstration of why he was able to kill so many people and get away with it, the day of his passage will be a solemn one in Congress. The article goes on, of course, to indict the United States for its racist past. Uh, Kissinger is held responsible for one of the things cited is what he did in Cambodia. That would be Pol Pot and the mass murdering of millions of people. But that was Henry Kissinger's fault. You know, it just it's just another observation, Tom, that um, the hatred on the left uh, for every aspect of our country. You know, you can't have a, a normal debate. I think you can have a normal debate about Henry Kissinger. Was the opening to China a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, Long term, did, did you know? I mean, I can argue that both ways. Um, but what what Rolling Stone decided to say, literally within hours of his death. That is a perfect example of the bile on the left and the neo-Marxists that's eating this country alive. By by the way, before the show is over, I definitely want to talk about uh, the attempt to kill the reputation, not of Henry Kissinger, but of a little nine-year-old boy that's a Kansas City Chief fan because it's motivated by the same sickness uh, on the neo-Marxist left. But we can get to that later. I remember that when Eisenhower had a a funny anecdote, or Kissinger had a funny anecdote about Eisenhower, after Nixon hired Kissinger to be his national security advisor, and you got to remember back in 1968, there was a huge Republican primary battle between Nelson Rockefeller and Richard Nixon. Kissinger worked for Rockefeller. So for Nixon to reach out, to Kissinger after this brutal primary campaign was a real testament to Nixon himself. But what Rolling Stone might not remember is that the Vietnam War didn't begin the day Richard Nixon took office. Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger inherited what we would call a uh, a fecal show. It was uh, an unenviable uh, position they were in. We were mired in Vietnam. We'd overcommitted. And by the time they got there, it appeared as though we were losing. The Soviet Union was expanding its influence. It was winning the nuclear arms race. It was uh, laying down roots in the Middle East, in Latin America, in South America. Uh, the grand strategy that Henry Kissinger devised was to buy us time to get back in the game. We were losing. That's what SALT was all about. That's what uh, the negotiations with the Soviet Union were all about. And we can, uh, in, with the hindsight of 50 years of history, we can talk about the opening to China. But I could argue, I think with some validity, that the opening to China hastened the end of the Cold War. Granted, it presaged the beginning of a new Cold War 50 years later that we now face with China, which uh, is far more delicate. But uh, this guy was a, um, a grand strategist on the order of something we won't see for another 
a hundred years. He wrote uh, in in his White House memoir, which is a very concise, uh, a twelve hundred word, twelve uh, hundred page. Uh, uh, volume one of the right. White House years was actually it's the first 1200 page book I've ever read that was actually interesting for 1200 pages. But the biggest mistake he made, and it took him to say this during the Yom Kippur War 1973, which started on oddly the 6th and 7th of October, the same day that this war started that we're uh, uh, fighting now. Not a coincidence. Yes, not a coincidence at all. By the time the Soviet Union threatened um, to massively resupply Egypt and Syria, the Arab states announced an oil embargo, and that was on the 20th of October. And uh, two days later, the Soviets said, a ceasefire or we're moving in, and Kissinger pressured the Israelis to accept the ceasefire, and his biggest mistake was not demanding an end to the oil embargo. He says it never... It was the biggest mistake he ever made, and it led to an explanation as to why he overlooked that little point. uh, uh, It was two days. He admits that he never even thought about it. He just he they were so terrified by massive Soviet involvement. And at this point, remember, Gary, it was late 1973. Nixon was already on his seven or eight month bender. Um uh, and Kissinger very delicately writes about the fact that when he needed to speak to the president, the president was three sheets to the wind. So uh, he basically had to manage this himself. It was a huge mistake. He writes an entire chapter about the consequence of this debacle on his part that led to a 400% increase in oil prices in 90 days and change the geostrategic position in the global balance of power until this very day. So, yeah. um, Tom, you, you made a passing reference to, you know, in the battle between Nixon, <clears throat> who was hated uh, by the Republican Party establishment as well as the left and so forth, um, and the Rockefeller wing of the party. Uh, Kissinger had been with Rockefeller. Uh, and then when Nixon prevailed and reached out to Kissinger, uh, that was a pretty magnanimous and, and smart thing for Nixon to do. But, of course, the battle that's going on in the Republican Party now goes all the way back to those years and even before. Right. You're right. There's always been this war going on between the Republican establishment and Republican voters. And there's nothing worse than a Rockefeller Republican. That is two and- great Gary Bauer points in one week. Yeah. <laughs> well, I try to do my best for that big check I get, and uh, which is never made out to me. By the way, the um, don't worry, I'll 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 get it to you. I've just been busy. Um, the Zelensky point that you made a couple of days ago, I have passed on to uh, higher ups here at the Bauer and Rose uh, uh, Global Media Headquarters. Um, it was a great point, but I totally interrupted you about the Rockefeller, about the establishment versus more populist uh, battles inside the Republican Party. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so the, one of the um, one of the fallouts of that was you were mentioning that you know, Trump reached out to Kissinger or maybe Kissinger reached out to Trump. But whatever it was. Can I interject? Uh, yes. It was Tom Rose. Who reached okay. out to? It was Tom well, Rose. Who I didn't reached, know whether you wanted to confess that. And I, I, I have very, very few moments of accomplishment in my otherwise sordid life. That was one of them. It was well, moi, me. But <clears throat> see, I, Tom, I have spent incredible political capital trying to convince the populist conservative movement that. You're actually okay, <laughs> which uh, and you don't have to bring up the time you're probably spending with uh, neoconservatives saying to them, uh, come on, you know, Gary, you know, he's been there a long time. But uh, there were people that were not happy. You know, there all of a sudden Kissinger was was talking to Trump. Uh, but look, Trump was was attempting to. Uh, make a a significant realignment in how American foreign policy is conducted. And 
Kissinger, I, I think, was was all in. Correct me if I'm wrong, that it's long past due for the other side of the Atlantic to hold up their side of the bargain as far as what they're going to invest in their own defense. Oh, absolutely. Look, he was. The comments he made, uh, I remember, uh, I think it was the maybe it was the second time we'd arranged a, a sit down with the president and Secretary Kissinger. And at this stage, he was 96 years old, 97 years old, something like that. Uh, when we when I was walking him back to his car, um, he commented that <clears throat> he'd met with 11 presidents or worked with 11 presidents and none had ever been so unaffected by his presence that he couldn't ask the most simple, open-ended, uh, unpretentious type questions. That, And that's President Trump's great strength this he's he's not impacted negatively by by pretense or artifice or ego i mean his own whatever his own you know what i mean there's no yep. question that he won't ask anybody i mean very very simple questions what is it with the germans why don't they pony up what are they afraid of what happens if we don't that was one of the questions what happens if we leave nato and kissinger's answer was that would never happen because NATO would come to the table to ensure you don't leave. And that yep. was, you know, that was yep. very. And which is, you, you, Kissinger understood, on you know, operating from a position of strength, uh, which a lot of the foreign policy established by the United States acts like we're a third rate power. And, you know, unless we get you know, patted on the head by the United Nations or by the European Union. We really have to be very careful or we won't have any friends. Tom, I mentioned I mentioned Rolling Stone. Uh, this is uh, uh, Breitbart with with, you know, some more class here. But they, they have three headlines. Kissinger dead at 100. Headline two, figurehead of globalism's rise. And headline three, mentor to the World Economic Forum's Klaus Schwab. And I, you know, I, I don't think any of those headlines are necessarily incorrect. Um, you know, getting back to the Rockefeller, you, you know, the, is this not true that, that Kissinger said, Kissinger promoted an American foreign policy that would be sort of uh, what's called realpolitik. You, you know, you you do what is in the best interest of your country, even if that sometimes puts you on the side of some bad actors. Correct. And and the most obvious example is an alliance with the Soviet Union when the goal was to defeat. I mean, in China. The, uh, yeah, right. Uh, Hitler. Um, but. Um, th- and, and I can make the case for that kind of foreign policy. The problem is it's hard to sell in the part of America that tends to lend its sons and daughters to the American military. They believe that America or historically they have believed that America is good, is decent. They've been isolationists in the past, not because because they thought we were too good for the world and they didn't want to get involved with a world that was bad, but it's a hard sell to them. You know, when we get involved in foreign adventures, as they would look at it in in which like, what we're on whose side you want my son to go fight and die for what cause. So there's just a lot of stuff wrapped up in all of this that Kissinger is identified with. But there's no doubting that this was a, uh, a brilliant man and uh, uh, you can call him many things. I call the people that are currently leading us at the Pentagon and at the State Department just downright stupid. You cannot say that about <laughs> Henry Kissinger. He one, was not stupid. One other um and this is more than an anecdote. I think it it probes the depths of Kissinger and Trump's uh, innate uh, gut on geostrategy and foreign policy. 
the president asks Kissinger, asked it past tense, obviously, what does China want? Very simple. And you know what Kissinger's answer was? Whatever we're willing to give them. Mm. Well, that's that's probably true of almost any hostile foreign power until they get to the point where they believe they are now superior. Right. But the po- his point, Kissinger's point yeah. was they'll take they'll yeah. take whatever they can get from us for free that we give them a trillion dollars worth of IP a year, that we run $300 billion in trade deficits with them a year, that we spend hundreds of billions on a Navy that protects their sea lanes, their trade, their commerce, that we take in 300,000 Chinese students at our universities every year. Why wouldn't they get the sense? Why wouldn't they come to believe that time is on their side? They watch us implode culturally. They watch our divisions Rent. Now, he he argued ultimately, and you might agree or disagree with this, I'm not sure where I am on it, that uh, a conflict with China, he, he conflict, ultimate conflict with China is A, inevitable, and B, totally pointless, because after such a conflict, we will both find ourselves in exactly the same position that we are today. But he... Uh, he said, when you study history, it's the Thucydides trap that the rising power always, the, always makes... Because of war with the falling power. Correct. Always <laughs> makes... Do, do you need to tell our, mass, our vast audience who's who in that calculation? <laughs> I, I think they're smart enough to figure that out <laughs> all by themselves. Yeah, I don't know what... I think the, the laugh would be that we both just engage and would be called the... The laughing as you pass the graveyard, you know, I mean, this is an unusual position that the United States finds itself in. uh, But it's anybody that cares to see reality has to confront it. We are a declining power. I just think it's, you, you know, you can you can measure it all kinds of ways. The idiocy of what passes as a foreign policy or what happens on a street in any of America's cities. Uh, I used to say in that sentence, you know, after the sun goes down, now you have to say what happens on the streets of American cities 24 hours a day. I I heard today uh, or yesterday, Tom, that 15,000 automobiles have been stolen in Chicago in the last three months. Is that possible? I mean, that is but then I, you know, I have a family, uh, we have family members, obviously, in this area, and one of their cars has been stolen three times in the last three years. You know, it's years. it's very funny you say that. Um, my, my youngest kid uh, just started, he's off the payroll, thankfully, just started a great new job in Chicago, and he took his car up from Indianapolis, and... You know, if the old man is good for nothing, the one thing the old man is good enough to do is to fly to Chicago next week so I can drive his car back to Indianapolis because he thinks it's going to get stolen. Now, you might ask, Gary, why wouldn't he drive his car to Indianapolis? And the answer is because he's got a father stupid enough to offer it to do it for him. So I actually you're not going to believe this, but. I actually was talking to your son recently. <laughs> he didn't mention it, did he? And I, I said to him, so how much do you expect to get from your father? And he said, whatever he's willing to give. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so Touché. you are a falling power. Your son is a rising power. Touche. <laughs> Touche. No, he th- and it's a, I don't know, it's a crappy uh, car that uh, – uh, we got him and he paid for half of, and it was a big deal. It's like, it's, I don't know. It's a Nissan, a little tiny little car. He thinks it's going to get stolen. He wants it out. Well, it's probably, you know, he, uh, I mean, I think he's, these thugs start with, uh, you know, the lesser models until they're convinced they know how to steal a car without yeah. ruining it. You're right. You might be right. You're probably right. You're probably you know, right. One time uh, when, when, uh, my my family's one of my family's uh, cars got stolen. Uh, they they found it like three days later 
sitting in a major in a, in the middle of a highway uh, in a in a nearby state with all four doors open and the car had been left running and it was out of gas. <laughs> so the P so we, we, everybody, sometimes we sit around going, what exactly happened? What, you know, what, what did they see on that highway when they suddenly went, Oh no, stopped the car. Each of them ran out of the four doors. They didn't even wait to shut the car off. And that it just sat there for hours with people going around it. Before somebody found it and then uh, reported it back, yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway, well, Tom, I want to move on. Can I? Can I? Cha- I know you have a subject. I want to hit one and then I'll let you go to yours. Chuck Schumer, yesterday, yeah. attacking the left wing of his party. Um, I am not a Chuck Schumer fan. I've See, I'm never disagree with you again, but you go on. I have never been a Chuck Schumer fan. Me either. Uh well. Let's put it this way. The fact that we even have to come out and congratulate Chuck Schumer for condemning anti-Semitism in very harsh terms in a different age would seem rather strange. Shouldn't everyone condemn anti-Semitism in the strongest possible terms? Always. Do you deserve a prize for condemning anti-Semitism? Unfortunately, today in the United States in general, in the Democrat Party in particular, yes, you do deserve a prize for condemning anti-Semitism the way Chuck Schumer did yesterday. Yeah, no, I, I, I was glad to see it. Um, but I've I um uh, I have moved the goalposts uh, mainly because of things you have confirmed on this show, which is that the president that Chuck Schumer helped to get elected and desperately wants to get reelected uh, is uh, threatening Israel, uh, holding them back, um, and and he's doing it in a way that fulfills something that Elon Elon Musk said this week. Elon Musk said, one of our big problems is we have people who want to look good while they're doing evil. And that's exactly what Biden's doing. Biden is acting like he's the peacemaker. He wants to stop the unacceptable deaths of civilians on both sides. He wants to bring peace, etc. He's getting hostages out. But what he's actually doing is evil. He is guaranteeing that Hamas is going to survive this horrific attack they made on Israel that Israel is going to be weaker at the end of this, not stronger. And as you pointed out earlier in the week, that um, there will be parts of little Israel that will no longer be inhabitable or investable. So the, the borders of Israel will effectively be shrinking when they are already like a speck in an ocean of hostility. And that all gets to the fact that the Democrat Party's leadership will not openly condemn Joe Biden for what he's doing. I watched Senator, um, the senator from Illinois. um, That Mark Levin refers to as Little Dick Durbin. Yeah, Durbin. (laughs) Uh, Senator Durbin, what what do you think about these reports that – uh, Israel is being told that they won't get the weapons they need unless they do various things. And Dick Durbin says, well, don't we normally uh, require certain things of countries that uh, we give our money and weapons to? Uh, so there's nothing unusual about that. I, I mean, what a what a weak, ridiculous Answer And it's not even true. Are we putting pressure on Ukraine to no. limit Russian casualties, to limit civilian casualties in their defensible war? They were invaded by Russia. Israel was invaded by Hamas. Ukraine is defending itself. Israel is defending itself. Ukraine has been sent over $45 billion worth of munitions and supplies. Not a word 
of criticism. And by the way, I'm not criticizing this. I'm just stating a fact. We are not imposing restrictions on Ukraine's use of U.S. munitions to defend itself. And there have been 100 times the casualties in that war than there have been uh, in the Israel-Hamas war. Israel has conducted 15,000 armed sorties, air raids, bombing attacks, against Hamas since the war started. According to Hamas itself, figures I don't believe for a moment, 12,000 people have been killed. That's less than one death per sortie. Now, you're going to tell me that we impose that kind of demand or restriction on Ukraine? Has it ever even come up? Has anyone ever said we have to watch? We have to impose restrictions on Ukraine for the, for the, for the casualties they might inflict in their justified war of self-defense against a Russian invasion? There's no well, difference. Well, Tom, I mean, in addition to everything else, the uh, IDF must have really bad aim because in those 14,000 sorties, they have not managed to kill one member of Hamas. No issues of no reports are made out of Gaza of casualties that use any number for Hamas casualties. Everybody killed is a civilian in Gaza. Yeah, under a child. They're all children. Yeah, you know, it would be. Yeah, I mean, it's just. uh, uh, it, that, of course, Hamas doesn't wear uniforms, you know, so everybody's a civilian. They're all a civilian when they're being killed. They're all jihadist heroes when they're killing. Uh, you know, it's a that's a, a great line. Three great to- lines in a week from Gary Bauer. I you know what? I am. Uh, I've changed cereals in the morning and I think it's causing a new brain cell growth. One other one other point, and I know you want to switch gears. One other point, I know I said it was only going to have one. Um, you read our favorite people in the States. You talk to our favorite people in the States. Is BB caving? Is Israel caving? No way. Not a chance. They can't. They cannot. This is the first war in Israel's history. Whether they realize it or not, I don't know. The first war in Israel's history where there really is no practical restraint upon them. There's no Cold War now. There's no Soviet Union. There's no, you know, U.S. Soviet. Uh, there aren't threats of, of, of massive Chinese intervention or massive Russian intervention. Israel is not restrained. Israel can do and must do what it needs to do to win. From an Israeli perspective, a ceasefire means death It means a lot more than just Hamas wins this round. It means that Hamas will get away with mass murder. It means Israel can't restore peace on its own borders. A quarter of a million Israelis are displaced. A ceasefire means death. A ceasefire means that Hamas wins, which makes southern Israel uninhabitable. People can't yeah, go. Well, you know, there were two terrorist attacks on in Jerusalem every yeah. day that we're talking to each other. And, uh, uh, you know, there are reports of is Is of Israeli soldiers that have been killed by sniper fire during the so-called ceasefire. And of course we, anybody with half a brain knows that Hamas and its infrastructure are, are being, uh, reinvigorated are rearming, are moving things, probably people, et cetera, uh, during this respite. Um, no, there's, and, and of course, the Biden's pressure is an inducement for using civilians as human shields. Of course. Of course. Um, on, that alone. Yep. On, on, yeah. on to you. I've interrupted you twice. Well, I, I, you know, from from uh, something that is, you know, the passing of Kissinger and these huge issues uh, to an, a much smaller issue. But nonetheless, nonetheless it's a comment on um, what's tearing this country apart and uh, and what's undermining um, the youth of America's love of America, which is that uh, our whole culture, our educational system. Uh, it, 
you know, movie stars, all kinds of people are constantly saying America's racist. It's racist to its core. It's always been racist. It, you know, it will always be racist unless it's completely transformed. And when they say completely transformed, it means ripped out of the rich soil of Judeo-Christian civilization, uh, replaced with a sickening neo-Marxism, all of which takes me to a little nine-year-old kid in uh, Kansas City that went to his beloved Kansas, Kansas City Chiefs game this past Sunday. And uh, the colors of the Kansas City Chiefs are black and red. Now, the Chiefs are already a target of the cultural left, the neo-Marxist left, because they're named the Chiefs. And allegedly, this is deeply offensive to Native Americans everywhere who apparently get up every morning on the reservations or wherever they live and look at their spouse and say, I can't believe we had to live through another Sunday where a football team is called the Chiefs. What kind of a country is this? I mean, the whole thing is just insane. And then the Kansas City Chiefs are such reprobate reprobates that every Sunday at exciting moments in the game, one idiot or another actually starts doing the tomahawk chop <laughs> and the entire stadium, in spite of what their left wing betters tell them. Thousands of people are doing it in unison, including all of the players on the team who are different races and backgrounds. The cheerleaders who come in all colors and shades, all doing the tomahawk chop. Chop. So some, you know, Tom, I did not know this till last night. There is a certain group of sports reporters. They work for almost every major outlet in America, and they have one job to highlight race issues in American sports. It's not like they're sports reporters and they do normal sports reporting. And if a race issue comes up, well, don't hesitate to write about that, too. Their job is to find examples in American sports that shows just how racist this society is. And so that's how they get paid. They got to get more, you know, clicks. They got to, you know, more eyes on what their their boss says. Good job with that story about, you know, et cetera. So this one guy writing for one of the outlets sees on the big screen in the stadium this little nine year old boy, and he sees the one side of the kid's face which has been painted with black paint, and uh, he goes. This reporter goes ballistic. Look at this little kid who is already a racist. How does a kid like that, he say, even allowed to be kept in a home that would be teaching him this kind of who was this? I I don't even remember the guy's name. I think I think it's um, uh, I can't think of it now. Um, And at the outlet, I don't I don't think he was I don't think he writes for ESPN, but it's some sports He's probably uh, auditioning yeah. to write for ESPN because now yeah, they'll right. probably hire him. Yeah. So, uh, so that, and of course, then he attacks the NFL and it's innate racism. And what do we expect in racist America and so forth? Well, then people go out and, and they're going, you know, man, you're crazy. Did you, did you bother to look at the kid? There, there's other photographs because the other side of his face is red. He painted his face in the two colors of the Kansas City Chiefs. This guy doubles down. Well, he's a double racist. This kid not only is a racist against blacks, he's a racist against Native Americans. Now, Tom, I'm just watching you as we talk. And you may not. Have you heard this story? I have not. I, I didn't think so. It's okay because it shows you spend your time reading 1,200 page Kissinger books. <laughs> I wallow in this stuff. So uh, here's here's the kicker. Here, the family is a Native American family. They lived at a at one point in their lives on a reservation in California. This kid has been traumatized. I, I mean, he's everywhere. I don't blame him. Right. The, the father and the little boy was uh, on one of the Fox talk shows last night, and uh, he was he was sitting there. His father had his arm around him. Uh, well, uh, what what has this been like? Well, you know, it's kind of exciting. All the kids thought it was exciting, and I I got my photo taken with four 
uh, Chiefs cheerleaders. Did you see that? You know, the cheerleaders are mixed race. You know, they, none of them had a problem with the kid. Um, but he said now it's gotten kind of scary because people are calling me all kinds of names, and and I and and they said to the father, "Yeah, well, how can this reporter make it up?" The reporter's showing no remorse at all. How can the reporter make it up? Why I, the father said, I think it's too late for that. Um, Tom, I mean, I hope that family sues. Now, some other reporters that depended on this first one, once they realized what was going on, they went out there, went online and said, uh, I surrender. I can't believe I took that, that guy's word about what was going on here. I, I take it all back. Uh, I'm so sorry I did this. I apologize. So some of, but here's the here's the thing: the silver lining in all this, the the social media is full of chief fans who are saying, "Okay, guys, next home game, tens of thousands of us need to go to the game. Not only do the tomahawk chop, chop, but we need to go with one side of our face." Red and one side of her face black, the two colors of the Kansas City Chiefs. I hope that happens. To me, Tom, and you, I think you agree, culture's upstream, upstream of politics. And there have been some things happening in the culture in the last couple of years that have ultimately political implications. The, the guy that came out of nowhere with the song, Rich Men North of Richmond. Who's that guy? He just, just, exploded on the scene, right? Much to the chagrin of the left. You had that movie about child sex trafficking that everybody, well, this is a terrible movie. This guy's conspiracy theories. The movie made a gazillion times more than it costs to make. While woke movies are failing regularly at the box office. So I continue to think, and then again, a poll out today, Americans between the ages of 18 and 35. Now, we know how left-wing they are, a lot of them. But they're, they're not universal. And the poll, you can make a case, Tom, that these are people immersed in the culture, and they're getting sick and tired of a lot of this stuff, right? The, the latest polls got Trump 46, uh, Biden 44, among 18 to 34-year-olds. That's, that's incredible. So I think these cultural events do more. Maybe they're just evidence, but I think they do. They're doing more to move the ball down the field than the establishment of the Republican Party is because they still can't figure it out. I mean, I, our knee jerk acceptance of the belief that any grievance, every grievance has to be placated. That will seal our doom because. Yep. Uh, so what if you have a grievance when the use of grievances, no matter how valid they are, can be used to justify and validate the humiliation and ad hominem destruction of a nine year old boy or crimes, then we're finished. Um, if 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 Christian extremists had waged an assault against Muslims, similar similar to that in reverse, the decent Christian world would be apologetic, uh, would work to weed them out. Uh, They wouldn't be demanding the right to build uh, a church in downtown Mecca. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the, the, and I'm, uh, I'm kind of off on a tangent here, but, because I'm I'm focused on the White House's need to uh, diminish every instance of its term anti-Semitism by throwing in Islamophobia. It's ridiculous. They're they're not. <laughs> it's whataboutism, right? I mean, it's uh, but it's not equivalent. Uh, they're not. No, no, nowhere, no, nowhere near equivalent. You can tell the media is desperately searching for as many examples as they possibly can find that can be linked to uh, Islamophobia. Uh, while they studiously ignore 
what is happening in, in anti-Semitism. I can't remember if you and I talked about the Oakland City Council meeting the other day. Unbelievable. Which, yeah. One of the, the uh, Jewish citizens of Oakland that uh, courageously went to the City Council meeting uh, came out of it and said, I have never been in a, a room more anti-Semitic than that room in my entire life. And the debate there was a resolution uh, calling for a ceasefire and condemning Israel for its killing of civilians and an effort by one Jewish city council member and a few people in the audience to say, well, if we're going to condemn civilian deaths, we got to certainly mention the civilian deaths that started this. And the reaction of the people in the room is so sickening. I don't even think I want to regurgitate it's, it's it. Re- and by the way, the only reason I know about it is because it was written up in a London newspaper. <laughs> it is real-time Holocaust denial. It's Holocaust denial in real time. These, quote-unquote, petitioners, these Jew-hating petitioners were, uh, in in Nazi fashion, accusing Israelis of doing exactly what Hamas did. They claimed there were no beheadings, there were no murders of children, there were no rapes, that everybody at the Super Supernova rave concert were killed by the IDF. I mean, this is Holocaust denial stuff. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, I mean, it's an interesting argument, right? There were no babies beheaded. There were no rapes that took place. And by the way, it was the IDF that killed the babies and raped the women. <laughs> so they're arguing both things at the same at the same time. It, it's um, uh, it, I can't even put words to it. Now, I, you know, this analogy, you we can get go too far on it. But imagine a city in the Bible Belt in the United States that had a city council meeting in in which the same thing happened, right? Uh, The president would be on national television. These anti-Semitic mega Christians, this has got to be rooted out in America. This is the biggest threat to our country. There would be calls for massive changes in the educational curriculum in the Midwest and in the South, Every Republican would be asked 50 times a day, when are you going to condemn this sickness in your party? I'm saying all this, Tom, because Oakland, California, I didn't check the figures before uh, we got together this morning, but I'm willing to bet that the election returns in Oakland uh, in 2020 in the presidential race was probably something like 92 percent Biden and 8 percent Trump. So the people filling that room, I can safely say, were all Biden voters. So why in Hades are we not calling on Biden to condemn what happened in Oakland and demand from the Oakland city governor and the Oakland mayor a plan submitted to the Justice Department in the next before the week is out about how they're going to fight the anti-Semitism, which is obviously permeating the culture of Oakland. And we have imported and subsidized millions of people who come from cultures who believe this, who passionately are committed to the destruction of the state of Israel, the murder of Jews, the eventual downfall of the United States. And we envelop them, we embrace them inside institutions, uh, people by native-born Americans who absolutely uh, uh, believe them, support them, defend them. It's just strange that in a country so racist, um, People find themselves clamoring to join the ranks of the oppressed races and lobbying for laws to make sure that the oppressors don't get to pass themselves off as victims. If we're so racist, why does everybody want to identify with a quote unquote an oppressed race? I mean, there's... There's less difference today, I would argue, between the identity politics that we now worship and the identity politics of the past. I'm being euphemistic. Uh, Let's talk 90 years ago in Germany. Left-wing academics, they talk about the permanence of race and uh, whiteness studies. This is part of a, a, a 
national collectivist notion that shares much more in common with Nazi ideology and fascist ideology than anything we like to think of as being uh, uh, progressive. Um, yeah, it's national socialism. That's right. Which is what Nazis are. Um, I mean, so the people doing this are people that want big government. They want government to be totally free of any religious influence. Now, part of the coalition certainly wants government to be influenced by religious influence, but it ain't Judaism and it ain't Christianity. Uh, no, that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, so they have a they have a marriage of convenience because they have a common enemy, which is Judeo Christian civilization. Tom, to me, it's so evident in the media. Now, you you know, we had the tragic situation in Chicago, and I, to this day, I don't know what actually happened. uh, But uh, in in the wake of what happened in Israel uh, in the beginning of October, a a prominent female rabbi in Chicago was stabbed to death. Detroit. When the story broke. Detroit. I'm sorry, Detroit. When the story broke, uh, every media outlet, it was in the same sentence. Um, tragically, a, a rabbi was stabbed last night in, in Detroit, uh, but authorities uh, have been quick to say there is no evidence that this was a hate crime. And people should not jump to conclusions because there's no reason to believe it is a hate crime. Did you hear what I said? It was not a hate crime. There's no evidence that it was a hate crime. That it was all I remember on CNBC all day long. Then they began to lead with it. Uh, there was an act of violence in Detroit, but it, it was not a hate crime. Uh, that uh, we didn't know what it was. I don't think we still know what it was. Now, unfortunately, three Palestinian young men were shot recently uh, somewhere in New England, and the immediate assumption was in an obvious. Hate crime against Muslims by a white man, by a white man, by a white man, by would you ever find uh, two two whites shot by a black man, a black man, a black. This was the New York Times. It was in the very first sentence shot by a white male, white male, white male. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So it's just so evident that there there are powerful forces in our society uh, that are trying to. Um, that use hate crimes laws only in one direction and and use them in a way that fulfills the narrative that um, Caucasians and their Asian allies and their white adjacent Jewish friends are oppressing America. And... Uh, and we've got to be reminded of that every day so that uh, white children, Asian children and Jewish children feel guilt for what they're part of and what families they've been raised in. And so that Hispanic and, and black and other minority children feel oppressed and can uh, convince themselves whatever they have done that has been a bad decision where is all because they are under the thumb of the oppressor and that's poison. It's going to destroy us. It already is. Yeah, it already is. Whatever they take over ends up with less freedom. In fact, every institution they've taken over is less free. What the left runs has less Liberty period. End of the show. Yeah. And we're out of time. Uh, we, we've only got a few minutes here, but... Um, uh, no, we don't, actually. No, we don't. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm on, uh, I'm on <clears throat> power time. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a, uh, have, a, have a great weekend, a blessed weekend, a, a beautiful Sabbath with you and your family. And we will talk next week. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an edition of the Bauer and Rose Show. Have a great week. Have a great week, folks.